This morning, we're going to continue our series with uh, the grace effect in Ephesians. And one of the things that we're going to try to do a little more of this year is highlight examples of God's grace working in our church and working in our community. And and one way we're going to do that is to try to put the spotlight on some of our mission partners that we have. We have mission partners uh, that are serving here locally and also mission partners serving all around the world, taking the message of God's grace uh, to people who haven't heard it or who need to experience it. And so uh, we're going to do kind of mission highlights from time to time. So this morning I have invited uh, No Heart Left Behind. I've invited Alicia Stickles to come join me on the stage. We're going to just have a little conversation about uh, what this mission partner does and uh, and how you can be a little more involved with it. So Alicia, here you go. So Alicia, tell me this. Um, you, uh, What's your position with, with No Heart Left Behind? I'm the director of development. Okay, which means that you are in charge of everything? Yeah, everything, pretty much. Perfect, perfect. (laughs) Manage the talent. My mom, which many of you know, Abby Shields, she's the founder. Um, I always say, working with my mom, and this is a good thing, so don't tell her I'm talking bad about her. But it's kind of like putting an octopus in a bag. I mean, she's just got a heart for people and Jesus and loves people. But so I kind of try to be the organizing structure behind there, there all of go. that heart. Very important. And uh, so tell me a little bit about the, uh, tell us about the mission and purpose of No Heart Left Behind. What is it that you all do? Okay. Well, the, the heart really behind No Heart Left Behind is families. Um, our mission is to empower families to thrive in a broken world with the word of God and the love of Christ through counseling, mentorship, and community programs. Okay, so counseling, mentorship, and community programs, those are kind of the three things that those you Those are do. the three areas that we really have a heart to focus. Because, you know, we just really believe that Satan is attacking this world at its root with families. And that is really our heart is to support and empower them um, through whatever struggles or trials that they may be facing. And yeah. equip them with tools needed to just really create a culture of Christ in their home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's powerful, and we'll see later in Ephesians, actually, that uh, the enemy we fight against is not flesh and blood. And so many times, like in a marriage between parents or between spouses or uh, grandparents, whatever it might be, you feel like the enemy is the other person. Yeah. But I think we're going to see the enemy is, is not the other person. The enemy is the devil, and, and we need to learn how to deal with that. So uh, give me an example. Uh, I think we have something in our bulletin coming up, one of the programs, among others, that, that you offer. One of the programs that we're going to be doing right here at Trinity Church that I think could benefit parents. So can we get the next slide? Um, it's this, uh, the heart of parenting class. Tell us about that. Okay. So want to back up just a little bit as we enter our 14th year of ministry, we just are really excited because we feel like God has just really spent the past couple of months, um, focusing and kind of fine tuning our vision. One of the things that we really wanted to focus on was offering a broad range of um, events and community programs that has a broad base of appeal for the community. So we have things that are more social and evangelistic in nature, such as our ladies refresh night, our uh, connect date nights, in hopes that we could pull them deeper into things like discipleship and Bible studies and then these family-focused classes. And really the family-focused classes, the heart of them are to equip families with tools um, for various parts of family life. And so the one that we have here that we're offering our first one of the year is the heart of parenting. 
And basically, I mean, parenting is, I mean, I'm in the throes of it. So parenting is one of the hardest but most rewarding, you know, callings that God, you know, gives to us. And But the problem is, is that more instructions kind of come with a blender than how to parent a child. So this class is really designed to equip parents, whether they have, you know, a toddler or a teenager, um, equip parents with tools, uh, practical tools based on biblical principles to help create the culture of Christ in your home. So it's a three-week block. It's going to be uh, Tuesday, 6.15 to 8, and it starts on January 28th. And how do people sign up for that if they want to do it? Um, if you'd like to sign up, uh, you can visit our events page on our website. It's just noheartleftbehind.com. You click on the events page, and you'll see a list of all, our, all of our events that we offer, and you can sign up right there on the webpage. And what if what if parents have young children who need oh, child care? Yes. So child care will be offered for this class uh, if you need it. So when you sign up, there's a place to indicate whether you will need child care or not. Now, that's huge. That's huge. And I'll admit something to you. You know, I'm a pastor, but guess what? Even pastors need help with parenting. <laughs> pastors don't have it figured out either. We're in the middle of it. And like you said, uh, any instruction from God's word is appreciated. So Absolutely. thank you all for offering that. We're glad to have you doing it right here at Trinity. And uh, thank you for everything you all do. Thank so, you for having me. Uh, yep. Thanks, Alicia, and good to hear an update of what God's doing. And, you know, if you want uh, some uh, encouragement sometimes, sit down with Alicia or with uh, Abby and just ask for stories of what God is doing through that ministry because there is evidence of God's grace everywhere in that ministry, the lives that are being touched. Um, and, and we believe that through this series that happens here uh, in January and February that lives will be touched uh, right here as well. Like I said, we're going to continue with this series in Ephesians this morning, The Grace Effect. And the purpose and the, 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 um, I think one of the things that we see over and over and over again in Ephesians is that grace affects everything. Grace affects everything. If you've experienced God's grace, His grace touches every single area of your life. And for some of you, that's a comforting fact that God's grace, uh, interacts with every area of your life. For some of you, it might be a fearful thing like, wait, I don't want God's grace to touch this part of my life. That's mine. Uh, but regardless of how you feel about it, I want you to understand that if you know Jesus, His grace will affect you. His grace will affect the people around you. His grace will affect the entire world. And we want to see how we fit in to that plan. There's a there's a few ways that we can make ourselves, I think, available for this grace effect. And uh, last week we talked about these. uh, Really three things. Read Ephesians, memorize Ephesians, and pray Ephesians. So over these next few weeks, as we're in this book, I would just encourage you to do these things. And if you're looking at the list of things on, on the uh, screens, those are actually online as well. Uh, so you can go to our sermon resources part to find that. Last week, we also mentioned another thing that, you know, there's this this ticket that's coming up tomorrow night, this national championship thing in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, this uh, is a big event for this area, for this city, for this state. But I would encourage you that for Trinity Church, as we think about 2020, uh, that we need to remember that God has given us the ticket that we need to have a relationship with him, and that is grace. And so as we think about the year 2020, I just pray that this would be a year uh, where God's grace flows through this church to many, many different people. 
of all kinds so that more and more people can experience God's grace. More and more people will know him for eternity and more and more people will glorify him forever. And so that's our prayer for this year, for 2020, that this would be a year where God's grace flows through this church. We said this last week also um, as part of a definition of what grace is. It's God's kindness towards undeserving people or God's unmerited favor. There's this idea of what grace looks like. So I'm going to go back to this slide. As you think about uh, this morning, how does grace affect me? How does grace affect me? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter one tells us that God's gift to us, this grace, the salvation that he gives us affects us in an incredibly significant way. There's a phrase and you'll see it at the top of your bulletin uh, that's called need to know basis. Has anybody ever heard that that phrase? You're on a need to know basis. Uh, matter of fact, in the news this week, uh, there was an example of this. Uh, there was a, a, an airstrike in Iran. I suppose you all saw this airstrike in Iran. And uh, then there was kind of a congressional review where members of the administration and the military met with Congress and, uh, and they said, Hey, why did you do this airstrike? Why did it happen? Yes, I'm talking about politics right now. Okay. All right. So, uh, why did this happen? And, and, uh, the answer was, well, uh, you're on a need to know basis and you really don't need to know all the details. Well, you saw they blew up about it. I mean, it was a huge ordeal. Um, and yes, I just did talk about politics. We're not talking about whether that was right or wrong or any of that. But what I want us to see is that when, when you're told that's a need to know basis and you don't need to know, that kind of rubs you the wrong way, doesn't it? That's, that's what those leaders, uh, experience. Has that ever happened to you in your marriage or maybe at work? You walk in on a, a conversation and somebody's talking and they stop talking and you say, Hey, what were y'all talking about? <laughs> you know, bring it closer to home and they say, uh, never mind. Uh, you're on a need to know basis or basically you don't need to know none of your business, right? Uh, a need to know basis is another way of saying it's none of your business. And, uh, and, and unfortunately we see that happen uh, in parenting, right? We're talking about parenting a little bit this morning. Sometimes this happens with your kids. Your kids come in and they say, mom and dad, what were you talking about? And we're like, oh, you don't need to worry about it. No, no, tell us. And, and really we're telling them, no, you're on a need to know basis and you don't need to know. And, and that doesn't always go over really well. Well, when we come to Ephesians chapter 1, the second half, what we see is Paul saying, all of you who know Jesus Christ, all of you who are reading the book of Ephesians, you are on a need-to-know basis, but not in a negative way. He says, you need to know everything about what Jesus has done. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. I want you to know everything. In fact, I am desperate to tell you something. I need you to know a bunch of things that Jesus has done for you. Really, he says, I need you to know grace. You need to know what grace is. And so this morning, we're going to look at some of these things uh, uh, that you need to know uh, and see how grace affects your life, how grace will change your life. And what Paul says is what God says. I think you need to know these things. In fact, you must know these things. Don't miss it. God's not trying to hide it from you. He's laid it out for you here in his word this morning. These are the things that you need to know from Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to read uh, Ephesians 1 verses 15 through 23. And you can follow along on the screens or you can follow along in your Bibles. But uh, just listen for the things that we need to know this morning. Verse 15 says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. What I want us to see this morning, first of all, is that when Paul talks about knowing, is that he really means experiencing. You could put experiencing, you could even put another word in there, uh, relationship. Knowing equals experiencing. Knowing equals a relationship. And uh, this passage starts off with Paul praying. Paul's basically begging God. He's saying, I pray constantly for this thing. I pray constantly that God will let you know something. I want you to know these things. I want you to experience these things. And uh, he says, I do this without ceasing. Um and he also just says these things, I think if you read those first couple of verses there, verses 15 and 16, you can't help but realize that the only way we're going to know what God wants us to know is if God is involved, if God reveals it to us. The word revealed, it says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may he give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then verse 18, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, that's something that's done to you. So the first thing I think we have to realize when we talk about what is it that God wants you to know is to realize that you can't know it without his help. You might read his word. You might think if I follow this list of rules, then then I can pull myself through on my own. And God says, no, from the very beginning, the things I want you to know can only be known if I help you know them. In fact, that's the only way these things can be revealed to us. But what we need to see, I think, on this point, though, is that knowing is not just head knowledge, not just things that you know in your head. Knowing is so much more than that in Scripture. Knowing uh, means experiencing. You know, you can know a lot of stuff. You can know a lot of facts and never actually experience them. Um, intelligence is not the same thing as knowing when we talk in Scripture. When God says, I want you to know me, I want you to know something, God is telling us in Scripture that I want you to experience it at a deep level, not just have it in your head uh, so that you can recall it when you want to, to look smart, basically. We see this beginning in the Old Testament. I just want to read a couple verses for you. I don't have them for you on the screen. But Exodus 33, verse 13, all the way back in Exodus, when God rescues his people from Israel, uh, from Egypt, and Moses is leading them through the wilderness, and God gets pretty upset with them. And he says, uh, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says to God, uh, now, therefore, he gets in the way. He basically prays for the people. And he says, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. But he says, I want to know you. In other words, experience you. I need to know that your character is real. 
I don't just want to know in my head that you say you're a loving God or that you're a God who forgives sins. I need to experience that as you save your people again. Uh, Isaiah, same thing. If you go to the book of Isaiah, the very first chapter, um, this is really interesting. Uh, chapter three, or chapter one, verse three, it says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Um, so what we have in Isaiah is God kind of confronts his people. He says, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know how you're supposed to respond to me. If you read a little further down in chapter one, the people are like, well, what are you talking about, God? In fact, in all the prophets, they say this. What are you talking about? We go to the temple. We do sacrifices. We bring you offerings. We keep all the holy festivals. What do you mean we don't know you? And God basically says to them, you know about me. But you're not really experiencing me. You don't truly know me. You don't truly have a relationship with me. And so we see this in the Old Testament that when God talks about knowing him, he means having a relationship with him, experiencing him. It's not just knowing about him and what he's done or what he can do. It means experiencing him. Well, we come to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And we read these verses. I think there's a real danger for us that we need to see here. That Paul is saying it's so important for you to know this. You need to know this. There's a real danger that we can know about Jesus. But not really know Jesus. We can know about the Savior of the universe. But not really trust him. Not have a relationship with him. And not truly experience all the things he's offered us. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And so when Paul says, I'm praying that you will know these things, you must know these things. You are on a need-to-know basis. You need to know these things. He's saying you really need to know and experience him. Uh, there's a story told about uh, a famous newspaper man, William Randolph Hearst, who had a lot of money, incredibly wealthy. And he accumulated all these art, uh, this art collection and relics from all over the world. And, uh, he had a warehouse, in fact, of just all the things that he collected, uh, artifacts and things like that. And he found, he was reading one day and he found, uh, some things that he was interested in, some pieces of art. So he sent his people really all over the world, trying to track down these pieces of art, trying to track down where they were. And finally, uh, after several months, they came back to him and said, uh, we have good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is Mr. Hearst, um, we, we do have, we have found the items and we have them in our possession. The bad news is they were in the warehouse all along. Uh, and he had forgotten that he had purchased them years earlier. Uh, so the, the point there is that we can know a lot of things, have a lot of things in our head, but they do us no good unless we're experiencing them and using them. And that's what we want to say is all these truths that we're, that we're mentioning, all these things that we need to know about Christ do us no good unless we're experiencing them. Uh, it's not just head knowledge we're after here. So that brings up the question then, what do we need to know? What is it that Paul says we need to know? What is it that we need to know? Well, the first thing that he mentions in verse 18 is the hope that Christ gives us. He says, uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called you? Now, if you remember, uh, last week we talked a, a little bit about this idea of God calling us, God reaching out to us. Um, but when we talk about hope, what does that mean? God said, Paul says, I want you to know the hope to which God has called you. What does it mean that we are supposed to experience this hope? 
What does that look like? Because uh, when you think about the word hope, you're probably thinking about something like, you know, we just celebrated Christmas, right? And so when you have all those Christmas presents under the tree as a kid, you're looking at those presents and you're like, man, I hope that one has a BB gun in it. Or I hope that one has, you know, that toy set I've been wishing for. And, you know, adults are the same way, right? When we get a gift, we're like, I hope I get a raise this year. I, I hope this happens. And really, basically, that means it's uncertain. We don't know if it's going to happen or not. Here's an even more extreme example. The lottery, right? <laughs> Millions of people say, I hope I win the lottery. Well, what that means is I think I probably won't win the lottery, but there's just a little chance I might, a minute chance I might. And, and really, that kind of hope is a false hope, isn't it? It's a hope that is based on unreality and something that cannot be known. But when God in Scripture says to us, I want you to hope in me. I want you to know the hope to which you've been called. He's not talking about a wish or something that might happen. Uh, what God is talking about is a totally different thing. Christian hope, uh, biblical hope is a different thing than worldly hope. Because what we could say that Christian hope is, is confident expectation. Basically, you are confident that you will receive what God has promised you. You're not hoping that it might happen. That's not faith. That's not hope. Hope in Christ is that you are confident that you will receive what he has promised you. John Piper says that hope is faith in the future tense. Uh, you hope, you trust, you know that you are going to receive what God has promised you. And so Paul says... Uh, I want you to know the hope that you have. So how do you know that? How do you experience this different kind of hope, this this biblical hope? How do you experience that? I think, you know, if you find yourself in a difficult place, that's when the, the rubber meets the road, isn't it? And you say, are these hopes that I really have real? You have a loved one who's sick or struggling with an illness. And, uh, and you know that God says, I'll take them to live with me in eternity. Uh, but do you really hope that? Do you really confidently expect that that will happen? I think when you come into a difficult place, God's hope tells us that you can rest in his promises. Whether you're in a difficult place or an easy place, God says the answer is still the same. Rest in my promises Put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in the lottery. Don't put your hope in uh, whatever it is you think might happen to you. The only true hope, the only confident hope we can have is in the promises that Christ has given us. And so rest in him. That's what it looks like to experience, to know his hope. You can live life with a perspective of hope, knowing that God has taken care of everything on your behalf through Jesus Christ. So what do we need to know? We need to know the hope. But verse 18 also says, we need to know the riches, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the riches of his inheritance. Now, we talked about this last week, uh, and you can go back and listen to that message online if you want to. Uh, but what are these riches? We talked about what grace is last week, the riches of grace which God wants us uh, to experience. God wants us to experience the riches of his grace. And what are these riches? Uh, we talked about adoption. Uh, this morning we sang a song, I am a child of God. Go and listen to that song on our Spotify playlist or online somewhere. Listen to what it means to be a child of God. 
We have been adopted into his family. Here's the beautiful thing about that. That's a two-way thing. God says, I've adopted you as my child, and you are rich. You are now my child. You have my inheritance. You have full legal rights as my child, as a child of God. How amazing is that? But here's the other thing. Now that you're a child of God, you're in a family with other children of God. And so, and God calls that the church. And so God says, I've adopted you into this family. Now care for one another, live life together, disciple one another, and go out as a team and make disciples in this world. And so when the fact that we've been adopted into this family is an incredibly rich thing. An incredibly rich thing. Redemption and forgiveness is another one of the riches that we mentioned last week. We have that through Christ alone. We sang about that this morning. And then also this inheritance. The idea that God has given us an inheritance eternally um, is, is some of the greatest riches. Now, as we mentioned last week, the, the riches that we have in Christ are not necessarily things you can see. But they are things you can experience. Uh, the people in Ephesus, I think, would have understood this. I'm going to show you a picture. Ephesus was one of the most wealthy cities in the ancient world. Uh, this is a picture of the an artist's rendering. It's not there anymore. Of the Temple of Artemis, okay? This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, this temple, they say, was four times as big as the Parthenon in Athens. Just an enormous work of architecture. Got destroyed in three or 400 A.D. Um, but... Uh, the point is, the city of Ephesus was just full of wealth at the time of Paul's writing this. One of the richest cities uh, in commerce, in, in, in trade, and in money. There was a silver trade. Uh, religion was huge there. Just a thriving, wealthy, wealthy city. And so when Paul talks to these people and says, you have riches in Christ, they're thinking about material riches. Well, let me show you another picture here. This is Ephesus today. Uh, so that's the, the amphitheater, which is actually very impressive. Anybody by chance who's actually been to Ephesus? Anybody here? A couple? Okay. I wish I could go and see this. But Ephesus today is nothing more than an archaeological site that tourists visit. Another picture here. Uh, there's ruins that are absolutely impressive, but there's no money there anymore. That ancient city is no longer a temple, does no longer has a temple, no longer has all the wealth and commerce that were coming through there in the way that it did. In other words, the wealth is gone. But think about this, the believers that Paul spoke to in Ephesians chapter 1, they are still experiencing the riches of what God promised to them. Even though the wealth of that city, the wealth and the thriving nature of that city is gone, The believers who trusted Christ have the riches that can never be taken away from them. They have riches such as adoption, forgiveness, inheritance. These things can never be taken away. How do you experience these things? I think when we think about this topic of riches, it's important to have the perspective that Jesus encourages us to have. When we think about riches, Jesus says a lot about this, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 6, Uh, Verse 21, Jesus says, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And when we think about heavenly treasures versus earthly treasures, God says, I have given you treasures. And so the way that we manage our treasures on earth needs to be related to that. And uh, this idea of, of Jesus saying, store up for yourself riches in heaven, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, if you're pursuing worldly riches, worldly treasures. That's where your heart is going to be. But Jesus says to us, 
Pursue my treasures. Pursue the grace that I offer you and the life that I have given you, the new life, the eternal life that begins now. Pursue that with your whole heart and all the rest of these things will be added unto you. Matthew six thirty three. So which treasure are you pursuing? Which treasure are you enjoying? Which treasure are you giving your heart to? Seek first the kingdom of God. And God says, all these riches you have in Christ, not because you earned them, but because I've given them to you freely through grace. That's what grace is. What else do we need to know? First of all, the hope. Second, the riches. But we also need to know, we need to experience the power. Really, you see there, uh, the first two were kind of in the same verse, but the last five verses of the, pa- of the passage are devoted to, uh, to the power. We see that they get extra ink, if you will. This one thing gets extra ink, extra words in this passage. Look at what it says here in verse 19, starting there. All the different words that Paul's trying to use to tell us about the power. It's like he just can't use enough words to say how important God's power is in our lives. He's just repeating himself. So it says this, uh, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Immeasurable great power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Uh, verse 21 says far above all these things. Um, he put all these things under his feet. Basically what Paul's saying is you need to know God's power. He doesn't say you need to know about God's power. You need to know God's power. Well, what kind of power is this? Since Paul spends so much time on it, I want us to spend a little time on it. What kind of power is this? And first of all, we see that it is resurrection power. Resurrection power. In verse 20, it says, uh, verse 20 says, This is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When you think about what kind of power does it take to make a dead person come alive again? That's miraculous power. That's resurrection power. There's no other power like that in the universe. And guess what, folks? God is in the business of making dead things come alive again. Yourself and myself included. You know, one day you will experience God's resurrection power in full. When you're resurrected, you have a resurrection body, no more sickness, no more pain, no more disease, no more diabetes for me. Um, I look forward to that. But even this day, this passage tells us, I can experience God's resurrection power. The same amazing power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead is active in my life today, it says in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He is showing us his power even today. What does that look like? I think we have to realize, like I said, that he is making dead things come alive. Whether that's a relationship you have, maybe a marriage or a friendship, something with your kids. Maybe it's something in your own heart that's dead or dying. God says, my resurrection power can make that come to life again, miraculously. That's the kind of power he says, I want you to know. Many of you have experienced that. Things that you thought were gone, hopeless, God has given new life to. So experience the resurrection power. Experience his sovereign power. Verses 20 and 22. This is, this is amazing. This is this idea of, of Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. He went up to heaven 
on the ascension, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. We don't hear a lot of sermons about that, but that's actually one of the most important things that happens in all of Scripture, is that Jesus comes to heaven after his resurrection and sits down at God's hand. What does that mean? That means his work is completed. He's sitting down to reign and to rule. He is the king. We sang a song this morning, the king of my heart. Um, Jesus is the king. The thing we see here too is he is king over every other authority. He is sovereign over every other authority in the entire universe. Uh, I love that whole list. It doesn't leave anything out in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. So God says that Jesus is above every single authority. He is sovereign. He is the king over all, the king over all things. And did you hear that part in there about it being eternal? It's not just for 2020. It's not just for 2000 and this millennium. It's for all the millennia that will follow after. It says not only in this age, but in the age to come. This is the power that he has. Sovereign power as king of the universe forever and ever. And also every place in heaven and on earth. This is for everything, every place. This is the kind of sovereign power he has. How do we respond to that? I think art sometimes helps us to understand these things. And so here's a piece of artwork. You probably can't see it great on the screen. This is actually the dome of the chapel at Beeson Divinity School. This is where I went to seminary. Uh, and I love this picture because if you look at it, right in the middle, you might can't see it too well, but there's Jesus sitting there or, or standing there with his arms stretched out. And Jesus is above all things in that chapel, okay? He's at the very peak of the chapel. It reminded us that Jesus is overall. He's surrounded by the saints uh, and the heroes of the faith. And then there's a lot of, you, you can't see it on this screen because it's too small, but there's a lot of little faces up there uh, surrounding Jesus. All the saints who will be with him forever. He is king overall. He is above all things. So what do we do with this king? We serve him. We bow to him. Bow to your king. Serve your king. Love your king. He asks us to follow him. And that brings up the next thing. The next thing about what kind of power does he have? It's gospel power. Gospel power. Um, it says in verses 22 through 23, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So basically God says, or Paul says that God put Jesus as the head over the body, which is the church. Now, uh, this is a very, very powerful word picture in the New Testament. The idea of Christ being the head of the body. Uh, there's a drawing here, another picture for you. The Vitruvian man. This was drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. And, uh, and he basically drew the ideal man. And here's the thing. When you realize, when you study in medical fields and all these things, the body does what the head tells it to do, right? The brain is the control center. The head tells the body what to do. A healthy body will do what the head tells it to do. And so if we have this head who is Christ, we are called to follow the head. This idea of, of the head, him being the head of the church, you might say, wow, so Christ is the head of this really powerful, amazing thing on earth. And what is that? It's the church. It's the church. 
And you might look at that picture and say, wait, the church? You mean like a small gathering of believers that meets at 19380 North 10th Street in Covington, Louisiana? That's God's plan to change the world? And the answer is yes. God says, I've given Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church, this church included. Because you see, God says, I have all this mighty power. The power of the gospel can change everything. The power of grace can change everything. And guess what tool I'm going to use to do that? The church. God says the church, Trinity Church, other churches, the church is plan A to change the world. And there is no plan B. So brothers and sisters, we are God's plan to change this world. If you know Christ, he says, I want to use you to multiply grace to thousands and thousands of people. You're going to follow your head, the head of the church. And this is great power. So when you think about this, how could this be a powerful thing? It's just a bunch of people like us who are flawed. How could we possibly change the world? We can't. (laughs) But God's grace can through us. God's plan to rescue the world is to use the church. So how do we respond to that? I think the last thing we see from this passage, why does Paul tell us all these things? Why does he say you need to know these things? I think it's because he's telling us because you need to follow the leader. Look at all these amazing riches you have in Christ. Look at all these things God has given you. And guess who's the head of this organization, of this body that you are in, this church? It's Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to you, Come follow me. Follow me. And I think that looks like a couple things. Number one, it begins by trusting him. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Do you trust that he alone is the one who can save you from sins? He alone is the one who can give you eternal life. Have you trusted him? It begins with trusting him. And not just trusting him for salvation, but trusting him from day to day. I think it also looks like getting to know him, right? Having a relationship, not just knowing about him, but following him, following your leader means getting to know him. You got to be in his word. You got to spend time with him. You got to be around his people who are encouraging you to do the same thing, to live in community. And all that together, I think, is what we would call following him. Follow his teaching, follow his ways, walk alongside his people, live in this church that he is the head over. Follow me, says Jesus. We're talking about the grace effect. I think we have to realize when we look at passages like this, that grace will affect every area of your life. And it doesn't end there. It affects all the lives of all those around you, whether they're close by, far away, whatever. But it's my prayer again that this would be a year that God uses Trinity Church to let his grace flow to many, many people. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do through Trinity Church. And God, we thank you for what you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each individual here would not just know about Jesus, but that they would know him, have a relationship with him, and walk with him each day. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.